Now, this last week, uh, I actually did with a number of us uh, on staff, a smaller group, not quite as diverse as what was uh, just in the video, but we did this exact exercise, um, and I got to experience what it feels like to have your privilege exposed. I, I kind of suspect, like the white guy in the video, I kind of suspected that I was going to be uh, near the front. I didn't expect that I would be the person furthest to the front in the entire uh, experience. Uh, in fact, the, some of the starkness of the experience was that there, there was never a question that was posed that I didn't step forward for. And uh, I, there was only one question where I stepped back, and it was a, a family member being a part of a union. And that was true in my experience, but even that was, was by choice, and it was a pathway to personal business ownership. It was on the route to privilege. I probably shouldn't have stepped back, but it was, it was stark to me to realize uh, just how much more privilege I had than the person who was way at the back, the furthest from me. Um, it's powerful to be forced to grapple with the privilege that you've had growing up, which is why I want us to grapple with it just a little bit this morning. We're not going to be able to do the exercise like we did on the screen. We're not moving anywhere, but... I want you, I'm going to read you some of the questions that we were presented in our experience of the exercise this week. And I want you in your mind's eye, I want you to think about your own life and I want you to envision whether you would be stepping forward or, or stepping back and then we'll reflect on it a little bit afterwards. Uh, but here are the questions. First one, if there was more than 50 books in your house growing up, step forward. If you've ever been diagnosed as having a physical or mental illness or disability, step back. If your family took vacations regularly, other than to visit relatives, step forward. If a parent was partially or fully illiterate, step back. If you feel good about how your identified culture is portrayed by the media, step forward. If you grew up living in rented apartments, step back. If you get time off for your religious holidays, step forward. If you've ever felt passed over for an employment position based on your gender, ethnicity, age, or sexual orientation, step back. If your family ever owned real silverware or china, step forward. If your parents ever delayed paying monthly bills due to a lack of funds, step back. So I wonder what your experience is, even as you just think about these questions, the kinds of things that constitute privilege or lack thereof. Were you moving forward more than you thought you were or less than you thought you were? Where did you envision yourself in comparison to some of the people around you? Um, how did it make you feel? Was, were you sad? Were you surprised, embarrassed? See, the thing about privilege is that people who have it are blind to it. And the more you have it, the more blind you are. The thing, I, I, like I said, I wasn't surprised that I was a person with privilege. Um, I remember we were hosting a conference at uh, our St. Catherine's location a while ago, and there was a volunteer room that had snacks in it. 
And I was starving, hungry, so I came into the building and I walked straight over to the room because I knew I could find food there. And as I walked in, there was a volunteer there who'd been a member of the church for some time. And jokingly, she wagged her finger at me and she said, excuse me, sir, this is for volunteers only. And I turned to her and I said, listen, I am a 40-year-old straight white male. I will go wherever I want and do whatever I feel like, right? Like, I know that I'm a person with privilege, but what surprised me in the experience were the things that counted as privilege that I just thought were normal. If you had 50 books in your house, if you had a bank account as a little kid, I remember opening a bank account at five years of age. Uh, If you participated in recreational activities that cost money, like everybody I knew did that. And the things that, that counted against you in privilege, if You had to work during high school. I knew lots of people who worked during high school. But to support your family, who's doing that in high school? If you dealt with illiteracy in your family, if you qualified for uh, free breakfast or lunch at school or you used food stamps in a restaurant, these were not experiences that I knew anything about growing up. I had no idea that people lived in those sorts of circumstances. And that's the reality of privilege. Privilege makes you blind to other people's experiences. That's actually very central to the story of Esther. So the way the story of Esther goes, she's obviously somebody who's not born into privilege. She gets it. She's being given it because of her beauty. She didn't earn it. But because of her beauty, this servant rigs the whole thing. So she gets picked. Um, So she knows she has some privilege, but even as somebody who knows that she has privilege, she finds her experiences still separated from everybody else who's like her. So this plot is hatched. Somebody comes to the king who hates the Jews, of which Esther is one, which would have been a step back in her culture, and says, I hate the Jews and I want them exterminated. And the king says, what difference is it to me? Go ahead. And so he writes this order that on a specific day on the calendar... Everybody in the whole empire is allowed to pick up a weapon and kill whatever Jew happens to be living nearby. Well, Esther's Jewish uncle Mordecai hears about this, and he's obviously terrified and devastated. He's wailing and crying, and he comes to the palace to try and get Esther's attention. And in Esther 4, verse 14, or Esther 4, verse 5, it says this, Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. She had no idea what was going on with her people because of her privilege. Her privilege had separated her from everybody else in such a way that she didn't even understand the oppression that was going on. That's what privilege does, right? Because I am a preacher, but I am a male, I know that unlike female preachers, I can be invited and go and preach wherever I want. Whereas if you're a female preacher, there are just some environments you're not welcome. And I know that when I preach, people will come up, hopefully afterwards, and say, you know, great job. And I won't have to listen to somebody say, great job for a girl. Because I'm white, I can drive in the States and get pulled over by the police, as I have on many occasions, and not have to worry about whether I'm going to be arrested or worse. Because I'm straight, I can walk down the sidewalk and hold my wife's hands and not worry about the looks that I'm going to receive, the sideways glances, or the verbal or even physical abuse that I might endure. Right? Because I'm wealthy, I can call my doctor, sit in his office, and say anything and be taken seriously. And never once will he judge me and say, well, you brought this on yourself. 
right? And because that's true, I don't think about the experience of somebody who's a person of color or the experience of somebody who is uh, part of the LGBTQ community. I don't think about the experience of somebody who's poor or so on. I don't think about what it's like to be a minority or an immigrant or a person with a disability. I just, First Nations, I just don't think about those things. I'm blind to those experiences altogether because my privilege has separated me from the experience of others. It's made me blind to my own advantages and blind to other people's disadvantages. That's what privilege does. And that's what we're called to counteract by the gospel, I think. Jesus is inviting us to live in the opposite direction of that reality. Because truth be told, you start to talk about privilege to people who have privilege, and honestly, the first emotions that begin to emerge are emotions of guilt and defensiveness. It happened when we did the exercise this last week. Uh, The people who moved further forward were embarrassed and felt guilty about being given so much privilege And actually, I even said to the person who was furthest to the back, I said, I was afraid that you would resent me for the amount of privilege that I had. And quite honestly, guilt is not the point, right? Guilt is actually completely inappropriate. Privilege is undeserved. It's unearned. You didn't ask for it. You didn't work for it. You didn't want it necessarily. It's just something that you were given. There's no need to feel guilty about something that you had no control over. But it's also not productive. It's not helpful. Because to... to kind of struggle with those feelings of guilt or shame or embarrassment um, is to put yourself in the center of the story, is to make the story of privilege all about you again instead of wondering how the story could become about the people who have less than you. Because that, I think, is the invitation of Jesus to those of us who have privilege. It's to try and figure out ways to leverage our privilege, to disempower ourselves in order to empower somebody who has no power. Right? That's what happens in Esther. So Esther's talking to Mordecai about this whole situation. And Mordecai says to her in verse 14, Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai says to her, your privilege is a gift. Not a gift to you, it's a gift to the rest of us. The fact that you have privilege means that the possibility exists for you to intervene on our behalf and prevent this horrible thing from happening. That's what privilege is for. Now that was going to be an incredibly risky venture for Esther because to go into the presence of the king without being invited was actually against the law and was punishable by death if the king wasn't happy to see you. But this is Esther's response. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, verse 16. Go together, uh, get together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm prepared to sacrifice everything in order to try and leverage my privilege to disempower myself in order to empower somebody else who lacks power. And this is the plan. This is what she does. She hears from someone who lacks privilege, understands and empathizes with her their scenario, and then chooses to respond out of her privilege in a way that attempts to change their circumstance. That's what privilege is all about. 
First of all, it's all about listening to people who don't have privilege. If the first impact of privilege is that it separates those who have it from those who don't, so we don't even understand each other, then the first mandate of privilege is to reconnect those who have it with those who don't. It's to say that those who have privilege have the responsibility to be in relationship with those who don't so that we can listen. Not so we can be the solution, be the savior, solve their problems, none of that. Be in relationship so we can listen, so we can listen to their stories, and we can listen to their experiences and believe them. If your friend who's a person of color says, I think this happened to me because of my race, your response is not, no, that can't be true. They know their experience better than you do. Listen to understand their experience and believe them when they tell you their stories, their horrible stories. Listen to empathize, to have your heart broken for people who lack the privilege that you've had, who've had a harder path at life than you. Listen to discover ways in which you can be their ally. They can tell you what helps and what doesn't for someone with privilege. For example, you going on social media and posting a whole bunch about an issue that does not affect you personally. Like if I was to go on social media and post a whole bunch about First Nations issues and truth and reconciliation, that's not helpful. I'm inserting myself into the middle of somebody else's story. What I can do instead is to find First Nations people who are posting about this and repost them without saying a word. Give their voice access to my audience, to my platform, and let them speak louder than they would otherwise be able to. That's helpful. You can join organizations that are working towards these causes, but probably the most powerful thing you can do, and this sounds a little bit like what Grant LaFleche was telling us last week, one of the most powerful things you can do is be an advocate and an ally within the sphere of your own influence among your people. Call out the racism and the ageism and the ableism and all the discrimination and bias and prejudice and the ugliness and the joking and the insults and the attitudes, call that out among the people with whom you have influence and say, that's just not appropriate. But the point is to be somebody first who listens to the experience of somebody who doesn't have the same kind of privilege that you've had. And then the second thing, which Esther did, was to act to try and leverage her privilege in order to empower somebody else. And this is exactly what Esther does. Esther goes to the king, and he wants to see her. He spares her life, and she explains the whole situation about how it affects her and how it affects her family, and the king is enraged. He didn't realize this impacted his own wife. She is a voice with privilege, and so she gets heard in the places that matter. That's how you use privilege. Anyway, he issues a second edict. He can't cancel the first, but he issues a second one. In Esther chapter 8, verse 11, it says this. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of the enemies. Essentially, he writes the second law that says, you have a carte blanche, absolute immunity 
for whatever you need to do to protect yourself on this day when people are coming to get you. Whatever it is you have to do to protect yourself, you're, it's already okay. And actually, in doing so, empowers the entire Jewish community. In fact, completely levels the playing field with the people who were going to attack them in the first place. And as you finish the story of Esther, you realize that the slaughter never happened. Because Esther used her privilege to invest in a community that had none in a way that leveled the playing field and made things equal. And that's the whole point. That's what we're being invited to do with the privilege that we have. I I remember once having a, a conversation with two men who were both immigrants themselves. They'd each come to the country with $5 in their pocket, you know, didn't speak the language uh, and so on, but had come here, worked hard, gotten an education, uh, started, excuse me, started their own businesses and and had carved out for themselves a comfortable middle-class life for their families. And this was quite a while ago when we had first opened the homeless shelter in our St. Catharines location. And the two men were talking. They were both struggling to understand the issue of homelessness. They were like, I don't get it. You know, we showed up. We had nothing. We didn't even speak the language. We had no education. And, but we had access to opportunity. We took that opportunity. And we worked hard and we made something of ourselves. And I just don't understand why the homeless can't do what we did. Because we all have access to the same opportunity. We all live in the same country, right? All things being equal, they should be able to do what we did without help. That's where I jumped into the conversation. I said, gentlemen, I think what you don't understand is that all things aren't equal, not by a long shot. That's what this privilege exercise is meant to illustrate, just how unequal things really are. I said, maybe you showed up as immigrants, didn't speak the language, no education, $5 in your pocket. I get it. Those are all disadvantages. You showed up with two parents who were together instead of one. You showed up with two parents who modeled a work ethic. You showed up with two parents who were sober. You showed up with two parents who were non-abusive. Your family never suffered a significant loss or a trauma that was beyond your capacity to bear. Are you beginning to see the ways in which things aren't always equal? There was once a resident in the shelter who was baptized at St. Catherine's location. The very first line of his story was, when I was nine years old, my mom taught me how to snort cocaine. Guess what? All things are not equal. And that's the point. As we enter into relationship and listen and understand and empathize with people's stories and experiences, we begin to realize just how unequal things are and just how hard we have to work in order to equalize what is unequal. The very best depiction I've ever seen of this is in this cartoon that we'll put up on the screen. Right? This, the, the frame on the left This is what those two gentlemen were talking about. All things are equal. Everybody has the same access to opportunity. Everybody's got exactly the same box to stand on. I don't understand what the problem is. The problem is that that level of access doesn't help everybody see over the fence. What we need to do is what's happening in the frame on the right. We need to start stacking boxes in proportion to how much people need them. We need to disproportionately invest our boxes in the people who disproportionately need to be lifted. That's called equity. 
Equity is when you disproportionately invest in those who need it more in order to create equality, in order that everybody has the opportunity to see over the fence. At Southridge, we learned this the hard way. Uh, for the first 15 years of my ministry, we just wanted women to be leading and teaching in our community. And we kept talking about it and inviting people and calling people and tapping people on the shoulders and saying to the women, come on, step up. You've got to step up and lead. And 15 years into our ministry, the staff was mostly male. The leadership team was all male. The elder board was all male. All the leadership in the community pretty much was a boys club. Nothing had changed. And suddenly we realized someone began to help us figure out that because of the significant disadvantages that women have faced within churches for a long, long time, we need to start stacking boxes under the feet of women if we want to lift them up so that they can start seeing over the fence. And we started uh, programs like Because I Am a Girl. And we started programs like Next Level Leadership, which are all invested in raising up and empowering female leadership in our community. And, and four or five years into that journey, the pendulum is starting to move. There are women who teach periodically. There are, there's a woman on the leadership team. There are women on the elders board. A woman chairs our elders board. And if you look at the next generation of young women who are being raised up in this community, they're filled with confidence and courage, with bravery. They're, they're beautiful. They're, they are empowered to step into this call of leadership that God has invited them into, but only because we were willing to disproportionately invest in people who needed it disproportionately much. Only because we started to stack the boxes. And you know what's interesting? As soon as we did, as soon as we started these programs for women, people started to ask, what about the boys? What about the boys? The boys are going to be left behind. The boys aren't going to be left behind. The boys are already so far ahead that we're just trying to help the girls catch up. It's that same impulse that when you hear black lives matter, that somebody says, yeah, blue lives matter and all lives matter. And those statements are true. But for now, the Black Lives Matter house is on fire in a way that those other people's lives aren't. And we just need to start stacking boxes under the feet of black lives in order to lift them up and create a new kind of opportunity in our culture. This is the reality of privilege. That those who have it have a responsibility to listen to those who don't, to understand and to empathize, and then to begin to consider how they might disproportionately invest their privilege, disempowering themselves in order to empower somebody who has no power. Because, friends, that's what Jesus did. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus was the most infinitely privileged being in all of reality. Uh, standing on the top of an infinite stack of boxes. And what did Jesus do? He deconstructed his box tower and began to use the privilege that he had as God, the second person of the Trinity. He came to earth in the form of Jesus of Nazareth and began to stack boxes under other people's feet so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And friends, this is happening all through our community. 
It's happening in relationships with Rose City kids and Welland. It's happening with relationships with migrant workers in Vineland. It's happening in relationships in the shelter community in our St. Catharines location. It's happening all over the place. But I want to tell you one story this morning. Remember that guy that I was afraid would resent me, the guy who was way back at the privilege exercise? His name is Darcy. This is Darcy. I'll put his picture up. Darcy is somebody who grew up with a significant lack of privilege. First Nations, which is a step back. He was adopted, which is a step back. He dropped out of high school, which is a step back. He was incarcerated, which is a step back. And the list, frankly, goes on and on. But Darcy told me after this experience that the first time he did the privilege experience, what he became aware of was that though he lacked privilege in many ways himself because he had been adopted by this family that had afforded him all sorts of privilege through their upbringing, he actually had significantly more privilege than 99% of his First Nations brothers and sisters. And Darcy said on that day, the light bulb went on that in the First Nations community, he was one of the privileged few. And he started to need to use his privilege to empower other people. So listen to Darcy's resume. This is what Darcy is up to this, this, these days. Darcy's part of the Three Fires Community Justice Program where he's a council member that guides participants to a healthier life that connects with the culture. He's been voted by the indigenous community to become a board member in the Niagara Regional Native Center, which allows him to help guide the center into new territory and provide new programs for the community and to reach out to the wider community. He's collaborated with a couple of friends that are also adoptees and are launching the Niagara Indigenous Adoptee Support Network in the next week. He speaks and does presentations about residential schools and classrooms throughout the region. He's part of the Compassionate City program, where he's able to reach out and speak on the issues of homelessness, addiction, and mental health issues, on how hard it is to navigate the systems in place and how unlikely friendships make all the difference. He's working towards opening a native men's long-term residence here in the region that is a, a, a satellite of a Toronto program. His friends and he relaunched the powwow committee, which had been like shut down for 10 years, which draws the indigenous communities together in friendship and learning. And he's doing all of this on top of a full course load at Brock, taking indigenous studies so that he can learn more about his culture and the other indigenous cultures of the area so that he can have a better understanding and serve these communities better. This is a story of a man who discovered the degree of his privilege, who was awakened to the responsibility that he has to use this privilege he's been given to empower other people, who has spent time listening to the indigenous community and is now pouring himself out to put boxes under other people's feet and to lift them up. And to me, friends, that just looks a lot like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we don't understand why we've grown up differently, why we've grown up in the situations that we have. We don't totally understand why some of us have more privilege and others of us don't. But God, make us a community that's beginning to understand what we are to do with this privilege. How we can better learn to see each other to hear each other, to notice each other's experiences, to hear each other's stories, to empathize with each other's uh, uh, stories. 
and to, to see ways in which we can be invited alongside to help participate, not in being the solution. We're not the center of somebody else's story. But in using the privilege we have to disempower ourselves in order to empower somebody else that has no power. Because that's what you did. And that's what you do. And we want to be people who follow in your footsteps. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.